Ahoy there, and welcome aboard the SS Fully Scored. Simon, can you put in a ship's horn sound effect here, do you think? Maybe. I'm Matthew Frost, and I'll be your captain today as we navigate our 23rd episode. As always, it's going to be plain sailing and an exciting voyage into Salvation Army music. We'll be docking for a while at Interview Island and Analysis Archipelago. But without further ado, let me introduce the rest of our crew for today. In a moment, you'll meet our first mate, Beth Malavance, Principal Cornet of the Chicago Staff Band and Music Education Specialist for the Salvation Army Central Territory in the USA. Up in the bird's nest, keeping an eye out for those pesky icebergs, we have Dr. Kenneth Downey, who will be giving us an insightful look into his masterpiece, King of Heaven. And of course, as usual, we'll be putting Beth to the test in Band Mastermind. Will she be climbing the rigging all the way to the top of the leaderboard, or will she be walking the proverbial plank? Army hearties will have to wait and see. Small disclaimer, the rest of today's episode has nothing to do with anything naval at all. Bon voyage! Beth, thank you ever so much for joining us today and joining us on Fully Stored. How are you keeping? Uh, things are well. Yeah, things are really good here in Chicago, starting to um, kind of get back to a little bit of normalcy. And so things are picking up again in terms of schedule. So things are great. Fantastic. That's great to hear. And uh, as you just mentioned, by the power of Zoom, you're coming to us from Chicago. Have you always been based in Chicago? No, I grew up in St. Louis, um, which is in Missouri, and sort of a little bit like six hours from here. And then I went to school in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and then out to California for CalArts, and then uh, moved to the Chicago area. So I've bounced about a bit. Fantastic. And have you got a favorite place out of all of those that you've lived? Definitely Chicago. No question. Excellent. What is it about Chicago that makes it your favorite? Um, well, yeah, most people would say, why, why not California? I personally like the seasons. So right away, California is out for me just in terms of the seasons. But it's got that sort of Midwestern, everybody is kind of nice feel. But yet you've got the big city as well right here in Chicago. And there's tons of culture and arts and great food. And um, it's just big enough. So Fantastic. Sounds ideal. So many people know you as the principal cornet of the Chicago Staff Band, but I want to talk to you a little bit about where it all began, first of all. So can you tell us about where you first came across the cornet or perhaps you started on the trumpet? Yeah, so I sort of started on them both simultaneously and I started pretty late. Um, yeah, I actually started in high school. So I started on the flute, you know, in, in grade school, like, like people do around here. And I just, it never um, really took to it. Uh, to be honest, I was very mediocre at best and I just didn't really care for it. Um, but my family, there's quite a number of Coopers, which is my maiden name, um, played brass instruments in the Salvation Army. And just one day in the car, I said to my mom, hey, you know what, I think I'd like to switch to trumpet. And sort of, it all fell into place from there. So started taking lessons from a couple of local people, um, bounced around a little bit, finally landed on taking lessons with my aunt, Linda, Linda Cooper, who is the flugelhorn player of the Chicago staff band right now. And um, she just kind of got me into the world of brass banding and the Salvation Army. So from pretty much, I would say maybe six months into playing the trumpet, I was also playing the cornet and um, playing at the core. And have you always been connected with the Salvation Army since birth or did you come to the Salvation Army around that time as well? Um, so we attended the Salvation Army when I was really small like a baby and um, then my dad stopped actually attending the Corps and my mom and I um, it was it was far enough away that it was too far of a drive for my mom to make with such a, a little one me um, so we started attending just like a, a Christian church around the area so when I started um taking lessons with my Aunt Linda when I was in high school. That's when I went back to the Salvation Army and I've been with them since. Fantastic. And I believe you went on then, as you said, to study trumpet, uh, gaining a Master of Fine Arts at the California Institute of Arts. And before that, a Bachelor of Music degree at the University of Louisville. 
So my undergrad was very traditional. Um, so like you said, the University of Louisville, which by the way, if you're in Kentucky, you have to say it that way. It sounds like you have marbles in your mouth. <laughs> it does look like Louisville, but the locals call it Louisville. Um, it was very traditional, sort of just normal trumpet uh, pedagogy, really centered on, you know, ensemble playing, orchestral excerpts, and um, some solo recitals. And so that was great. It really gave me a good basis into just basic trumpet technique, which was great. And I studied with uh, Dr. Michael Tunnell there, who was fantastic um, as both just a good trumpet teacher, good pedagogue, but also just a super nice guy, but like another dad, you know. Um, and then I went to the California Institute of the Arts, where I went to the other extreme. So it's very uh, liberal arts, heavy into contemporary music. Um, as you mentioned, it's actually a master of the fine arts because they focus a lot on interdisciplinary work there. So they really encourage the artists to think outside of the box and create new art forms. So there, I studied a lot of different things and it was really great. Um, I mean, they have all kinds of, uh, I wanna say crazy, but all kinds of varieties of art forms there, which is really great and really broadened my horizon to all the directions you could go within the art form. And also playing so much contemporary music really, um, really strengthened my technique, I would say. You know, playing things like Mario Sequenza and uh, Tisne and, and and Harold Eakes and, and just things like that um, really just stretched my my technique. Is that something you enjoy doing still performing that heavy contemporary music? You know, it's yes, uh, though I don't get to do it very often. So um, this is kind of a, a redirect here, but I think it can kind of answer your question. Last, uh, maybe two years ago, I'm sorry, I'm losing time here because of COVID, but uh, Martin Cordner actually wrote a solo for me called Faith Pursuit, if you're familiar with it. And the Central Territory, um, we um, published it um, in the latest uh, festival series. And um, it actually uses a digital delay. So it's, it's like my way of pulling contemporary in just a little bit to what we do in the Salvation Army. So what I like about it is being able to mix the two while not going too far in one direction for either audience to grasp onto. Fantastic. And so actually, I, I have one more. Uh, Andrew Wainwright just finished a piece for me, uh, sort of doing some extended techniques there as well. So we're looking to uh, push that out within these next couple months. Excellent. Look forward to hearing that at some point yep. soon. Then. <laughs> and do you still consider yourself as a trumpet player, or perhaps more now as a cornet player, or have you never ever had any conflict between the two disciplines? Um, to be honest, I've always considered myself a cornet player that also plays trumpet. Um, I just always felt like the most like like the at home to me, um, probably because I did trumpet and cornet at the same time, which is pretty atypical of things that happen here in the U.S. Obviously, in the U.K., that's what everybody does. Um, but here in the U.S., not really so much. Most people like start on trumpet and then kind of get into um, cornet unless they're in the Salvation Army. So I would say I'm definitely at this point way more, uh, way more on the cornet side. When I play brass quintet gigs, I have to sort of dust off the trumpet a little bit and remember how the blow and how you know works and how it feels. So um, I'm not sure I answered your question, but uh, definitely more cornet. <laughs> Sounds a very good answer to me. And who have been some of your biggest musical influences along your life that made you think, you know, I want to be a, a player? Yeah, so um, people that I have aspired to just in terms of sound and, and technique are that I don't personally know. Certainly, um, David Dawes has always had an, an iconic sound to me, and I've always loved his sound. So when I go back and listen to things like um, Joyous Song, you know, just they, those always um, touch me, and I just love that. Um, Richard Marshall, Tom Hutchinson, phenomenal players and just people to certainly um, look up to in terms of that. But um, actual personal mentors, you know, I would go back to my Aunt Linda and just say, um, starting out and playing right next to her, she's got a really pure tone. And it was something I tried to emulate from the very start. And Peggy Thomas, obviously, as well. She's been a big mentor of mine for a number of years here, um, both in terms of musical and, and spiritual aspects. So. Fantastic. And uh, as mentioned earlier, you are principal cornet of the Chicago Staff Band. 
Can you tell us a little bit about your time in the band, when you joined, and perhaps any highlights that you've had from your time so far? Sure. I actually can't remember what year I started with the band. I think it was, I think it was the beginning of 2007, maybe, sort of losing track of time. I actually started with the band um, after the Thanksgiving concert, so it was sort of mid-season, um, and Bill Himes was still the conductor at the time. I sat in the back row for that season. Um, and then the next season, uh, there happened to be an opening in the front. And so I sat on solo three, where I sat for quite a number of years um, before then they slid me up to solo two. And then um, when Peggy announced that she was going to like sort of retire that seat and move down a little bit. So Boundless, um, that was Peggy's last uh, performance as principal. And from there on, when Harold took the job, um, that's when I moved up to principal. So I've sat in a couple of, of seats in the band and they've all been great for a variety of reasons. Uh, highlights for sure, ISB 120, uh, Boundless, the North American trip. Um, they're all really great experiences, but it's, it's always really fun when you get together in those big collaborative endeavors where you get to get together with other staff bands and sort of like-minded people and, and see their bands and their ministries up close and personal. It's, it's really great. Brilliant stuff. Now, back in uh, episode 10, I think it was, of this podcast, um, in one of our live interviews that we did, we spoke to Peggy Thomas, uh, your predecessor, as you mentioned, as uh, <laughs> Principal Cornet and now Assistant Principal Cornet to you. One of the conversations that we had was uh, surrounding her becoming the first female Principal Cornet of a staff band and the reactions that that caused. Now, we're a few decades on and uh, you're in the same position. Would you say that... Uh, people's attitudes just are still similar or have they changed significantly since then? Well, Peggy was the first woman in a staff band and then also first principal uh, as well. But, um, you know, it's hard to say because I wasn't actually there. Um, but I will say based on some stories that I've heard that she probably wouldn't want publicized um, on the air. Yeah, there's no question. Um, we have it easier. I mean, I'm a part of a number of like women's Facebook groups. And to be honest, daily, I'm shocked at some of the things that I read. So I know it still exists. And I know there are a lot of people who have to deal with a lot of really unfortunate situations based just upon gender, which is absolutely crazy to me in my mind. Um, but I have to be really honest and say that I have not experienced a lot of that. I've been really lucky and it's probably a big part in due to Peggy. So when I joined the band, um, I didn't come in straight as principal. So that probably helped. People got to know me as both a person and as a musician before I moved into the seat. So I feel like I already had good relationships and the respect of my bandmates before I moved into that position. So um, in terms of this ensemble, I have not had to deal too much with that. That's good to hear. And I know certainly in the UK, there is still that gender imbalance between male and female in brass bands. How do you think that we encourage um, young female brass players more in the Salvation Army? Um, yeah, that's, that's tough. I'm not really sure other than to provide as many great examples as we can. Um, and just to continue to educate people, especially our youth, to really, um, really good positive influences that are women. So like maybe some women or some little girls, I guess I should say, don't even know that it's a possibility or it's open to them. So I think a lot of it's education, just showing people, look, look at this person, you know, they're a great example of what you can do. It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl, you know, a woman or a man, it doesn't matter um, in terms of brass playing. I mean, I just, I doubt you can prove any sort of physical reason why one gender would be better at it than, than another. It's not like it uses brute strength and it's like, I don't know, weightlifting or something. Fantastic. Great answer there. So as well as your role in the Chicago staff band, you're also a member of the brass band of the Battle Creek Chicago brass band. Of course, your home call of Norwich Citadel, um, USA. And you've also played the Athena brass band. How do you balance your responsibilities of the Chicago staff band with these additional playing roles? Um, it is tricky. I 
like like you mentioned, I'm uh, Principal Cornett of the Chicago Staff Band, the Chicago Brass Band, and the Norwich Citadel Band. So that's a, there's a lot there. And then I play with the Brass Band of Battle Creek, which they typically play twice a year. So that's um, sort of a non-issue because it's only twice a year. The other three are an ongoing weekly thing. So that's three rehearsals a week, you know, and and in addition to all the performances and other things. It is tricky, um, but I will say that I have really great um, support from my conductors, so that really helps. And I do try to balance it. When it really comes down to it, um, when I joined the Chicago Brass Band, which is a competition brass band, I was pretty clear right up front that um, the Chicago Staff Band um, is my ministry and that would take priority. That being said, in general, concert trumps rehearsal competition trumps concert so i just kind of lead with that and just try to keep everybody as aware of my schedule as possible there are occasions certainly where um hard conversations have to be had but mostly it's it's been okay fantastic and do you enjoy being able to explore different types of repertoire with the salvation army bands as opposed to the contesting bands oh my goodness yes uh that's what keeps me going back uh I haven't mentioned yet, but I do have a two-year-old at home. Um, and so that, you know, family is a huge priority to me. So keeping such a heavy banding schedule is a sacrifice to my family. And the, you know, if it wasn't worth it, I wouldn't do it. Um, that being said, absolutely. I really enjoy the, the differences there. So Norwich band, and that's, you know, that's my ministry. That's, that's my core. That's a no brainer. Obviously I'm there. Um, the staff band, it's really great to play, you know, great pieces that are Salvation Army, but sometimes other pieces as well, but it's great to do it in terms of ministry and getting out and, you know, spreading the gospel and, and some of the great opportunities that we have there. With the contesting band, um, what's cool about that is not only are you playing with a community group, so people outside of the Salvation Army, which I personally believe is really important that we don't isolate ourselves um, and get out there and actually show, show our ministry to groups that are outside of our ministry groups, but also they, you know, I love the test music. I love the challenge that it, it gives me. Um, not to say that Salvation Army music isn't hard. There's certainly a number of, it, you know, a number of pieces that are very difficult. It's just not the same though. Um, and anybody who has tried to play uh, Principal Cornet in a contest band will know that I'm absolutely correct with that. It's, it's a whole other level of pressure. It's a whole other level of technique. And it's just, um, I feel like it helps keep me sharp. Fantastic stuff. Now, I'd like to chat to you a little bit about your work that you do for the Salvation Army now. And uh, I believe you're the music education specialist for the USA Central Territory. What does yes. that role entail day to day? Yeah, so um, I spend a number of my hours on kind of music education events and like development things that we do. So leadership development. Um, we have some initiatives like Rising Stars, which is an online solo contest. Um, something coming up, which is a new, which is a conductor's forum. It's basically think a conducting symposium uh, comes and meets uh, brass band and Salvation Army. Um, so that is coming up. Um, also our CMI, which is our um, territorial music camp and things like that. So I spend a lot of time working on the logistics for those events. I also um, do a lot of things in terms of education resources. So our um, map curriculum, which Harold brought here to the Central. Um, it's sort of been my big project since I've been here. We're also um, unveiling a national uh, leadership academy called Mala Music and Arts Leadership Academy, uh, which is coming soon. And so I wrote the course on uh, beginners band leadership and, um, and recorded all the stuff that's coming along with that. So my day-to-day -day is mostly on leadership, development, events, and education resources, and anything else Harold decides to have me work on. <laughs> Fantastic. And what are some of the biggest blessings that you receive from that role? Um, I love going out um, and having opportunities to meet with the divisions and give um, just give leadership training and with both adults and kids. And so those that's 
that's what's really great for me. Before I took this job, I was a public school teacher. So on the occasions where I get to actually get in front of kids again, um, those tend to be the biggest blessings um, because all the work that I'm putting in um, behind the scenes in my desk, and then when I get out there and I can see the fruit of that, um, it just it proves it to be such a big blessing. What are some of the main perhaps similarities and differences between teaching in the public sector as opposed to teaching for the Salvation Army? Well, the biggest difference is that you can talk about Jesus. <laughs> so like in the public schools here, you can't do that. Um, so it's it's great because, you know, you can you can have prayers with with kids um, and you can do devotions and you can talk about the meaning behind the pieces that we're that we're working on. Um, I'd say that's the biggest difference, you know, just right off the bat. Fantastic. So do you teach children that are already involved with Salvation Army music groups or are you going out as well into the community to teach people that may have had no connection with the Salvation Army before? Um, it's a little it's it's a little bit of both it just depends so um, like if I'm going to a divisional camp let's say um, you'll have a mix of both kids who are in the army and maybe kids who are a part of the community weekly programs that they've you know enticed to come to summer music camp and probably mostly it's kids involved in the Salvation Army but there is definitely a pretty big uh, sprinkling of community kids as well. Fantastic. And what are some of the biggest challenges that you face day to day in, in your role? Uh, well, I've, the obvious one right now is COVID, right? So th that's been a big challenge, just trying to figure out how can we still resource the core? How can we resource the divisions um, when they're not getting to meet? So we've initiated a few online um, programs that hopefully will help, and, you know, when we're doing our best to get out there. Um, but for sure, you know, just the limitations of being able to get out into the field as much. Fantastic. And uh, is there any pedagogical, I hope I pronounced that right, or musical advice that you can offer to those listening who may be also teaching young people at their, their core? Um, well, that's a broad question. <laughs> um, yeah, probably. Like, I think when you're teaching at the core, just remembering to meet the kids where they're at. So um, I think what I see from inexperienced teachers who are good musicians, a lot of times what happens is they don't know how to break it down for kids enough and they expect maybe more than they're even capable of. Yes, you have to have a high expectations and, and set those forth for people, but I think just trying to figure out where they're at and, and maybe breaking it down more, I think is, is what's gonna be the most helpful thinking more minutia, smaller steps. And my final of these more serious questions for you is how has Salvation Army music making over the years impacted your faith journey? Um, it's, it's everything, to be honest. Um, I probably, I don't know where I would be without it, if I'm being really honest. Um, it's what's always brought me back. Um, it brought me to the Salvation Army in the first place, as I mentioned. When I went to college and um, things started getting difficult, you know, just to get to church um, and maybe I started slipping away, um, it's what brought me back. So I, and I had some, some um, difficulties with my life living out in Los Angeles. And um, when I moved here, it brought me back. And um, for me, it's, it's really been what has um, helped bring me back in times of trouble. Fantastic. Thank you for your openness and honesty with that. So it's great to hear that impact of music has had on your faith. So we now move into the section of quirky quick fire questions. <laughs> I've got a selection of some can maybe hardly wait. <laughs> some may be sensible, some may be a bit random. First of all, have you got a favorite Salvation Army composer? Oh, a favorite composer? I was expecting you to say peace, so you threw me with that. That's, that's my next Eric question. Ball. <laughs> Eric Ball. Eric Ball, fantastic. And you preempted my next question there. Have you got a favorite Salvation Army band? Sure, band? let's stick with Eric Ball. Let's go reserve them. Excellent stuff. Have you got a favorite symphony? <sighs> Mahler 2 or 8. Very nice indeed. What's your favorite thing about Illinois? <laughs> Um, 
the pizza. Nice. Sounds good. How about your least favorite thing? Uh, the politics. Okay. Fair enough. Pizza and politics. Sounds like a <laughs> CD title somewhere. <laughs> um, what's your favorite meal you've ever eaten? Would it be the pizza? No, for sure it wouldn't. My favorite meal I've ever eaten? Um, oh my goodness. You know what? It would be, um, my husband took me to a New Year's dinner, um, a New Year's Eve dinner, uh, which was like a five course thing. It was at this restaurant that's no longer even there. It was called like MK Restaurant. It was probably my favorite meal. Fantastic. Um, have you got a favorite passage from scripture? You know, I'm a little embarrassed to say that I don't only because I've had so many things circling um, on my stand right now. And we're, we're studying Matthew right now with um, the BSF Bible study. So probably just trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, follow him. Excellent stuff. If you could click your fingers and magically teleport yourself to anywhere on Earth or even the solar system, where would you go first and why? Um, probably Venice, Italy, because I've always wanted to, to go there and it's on my bucket list. Very nice. What breed of dog is your favorite? Um, I feel obligated to say my dog's breed, which is a Samoyed. <laughs> Fantastic. If your dog's listening, I'm sure he won't be offended now. Then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your most recently viewed TV series? I was watching, oh, what was it? Um, somebody had recommended it to me. I'm a little ways in. I'm not sure if I like it or not. So I haven't decided if I want to continue, but Yellowstone. Okay. And uh, have you got a best joke? No, no definitely not. <laughs> and my final question, again, I'd like to say maybe the weirdest for last. Oh, good. If you design your own candle fragrance, what would it be? Oh, my own candle fragrance. It would be something nature. I like the nature smells a lot. Um, so something sort of earthy. Very nice indeed. Well, thank you ever so much for your time for this interview. It's been really great talking to you and had a fantastic insight into your life and the Salvation Army's teaching initiatives. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you ever so much, Beth, for your time and for the impact that no doubt you'll be having on all of those who you're teaching or that your initiatives are reaching. It's now time for our analysis, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Kenneth Downey to Fully Scored. Rather excitingly, we recorded this next segment alongside an interview which you'll hear in an upcoming episode, Face to Face. Rumour has it that the piece we're going to be speaking about today was originally called King of Devon, as that's what Ken insists on being referred to as. However, in its revised title, Ken settled for the name King of Heaven, for the music, not himself. I should just make that very clear. You join us now from Ken's Exmouth Palace. So in today's analysis, we're going to be looking at a real iconic and quite a different piece of Salvation Army music repertoire. And I'm delighted to be joined by the composer of the piece, uh, Dr. Kenneth Downing. And we're going to be looking at your piece, King of Heaven. So my first question is, could you give us a little bit of initial uh, context into when you wrote this piece? Yes, I think it was about 2005 um, and I was working part-time in the music editorial department and in a way King of Heaven is a bit of an accident really in that Stephen Cobb, the ISP bandmaster, asked me to write um, a sort of uh, intrada, kind of one and a half, two minute intrada to start a festival off, that, that was what he, he asked me to do. And um, now this is not uh, an intrada lasting two minutes. This probably lasts about eight or nine minutes, <laughs> and um, it, so it didn't work out as as uh, requested. Um, I I had this. I, I I became frustrated about the the great hymn "Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven." Um, it is by Sir John Goss, the music, and. Uh, I've always loved it, and uh, it's no surprise it's been used on wonderful state occasions and weddings and things. It's such a majestic hymn. And the treatment of it in more recent years has been different, as, as has happened to many tunes. 
I never felt it sat comfortably with this the tone of this great hymn. Um, so that that was my starting point, trying to trying to get this uh, hymn in in a, in the context in which I felt it should be. Uh, Praise my soul, the King of Heaven, to His feet thy tribute to bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like thee his praise should sing? Praise him, praise the everlasting King. Now we're sitting here in Exmouth, and if we look towards Torquay, Torbay, Berryhead Lighthouse, that's exactly where these words were written by Henry Francis Light. He was the vicar there and uh, in the early 19th century, and he wrote a number of hymns, including Abide With Me, and... Um, and this, I think, is, is a wonderful hymn. And I feel strangely connected with it now because it was written so close by. Um, and I, the man who wrote the music uh, was um, Sir John Goss. And if I remember rightly, I should have checked this, but I'm pretty certain he was the organist at St Paul's Cathedral. And uh, he, he wrote some great, great stuff. And uh, when he wrote the tune for these magnificent words, to me it fits like a glove. And uh, so um, I feel we've lost something with that great hymn in the, the way it's treated now. I don't know how you could possibly sing all four verses in the same manner. And just, just in case listeners are, are interested... dignified um, thing. But when he gets to verse 3, Father, like he tends and spares us, well our feeble frame he knows. In his hands he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. So, not surprisingly, he doesn't give it the same treatment. He does this. But it's the words, isn't it? And likewise, in the last verse, when when everything is grand, and of course you've got to imagine an organ here in St Paul's Cathedral with all the sound filling out. Oh how I wish we had organs in the Salvation Army! Then then you get all the, the grand the grand version with all the big chords. Why not write a piece featuring King of Heaven and slap right into the audience's ear with a big picture of the King of Heaven? A big, not one of these cosy little hands in your pocket swaying about singing a hymn, same four verses, all the same way, irrespective of what the words say. So you think I, I feel quite strongly about this. That's how King of Heaven came came into being. And um, so that's why the, the 90 second to two minute piece ended up as a nine minute I always say to people who are playing it, try and imagine, you know, if you're old enough to remember. Ben-Hur or the Ten Commandments or one of these great big um, Hollywood productions from those years past where they have a, a massive scene usually with Roman troops coming back from the the empire paying homage to the emperor with various things they brought back, trophies. You imagine that and how big it was and what massive sound they produced and 
Think about this, the king of heaven here, you're bringing your tribute to his feet because he's ransomed you, healed you, restored you, forgiven you. Why wouldn't you want to sing? Why wouldn't you want to praise him? So this is a very big God and this piece has a very, very big opening. I don't think I've ever written one with such a big opening. I don't think you have to have a degree in music to notice there are some similarities to Benjamin Britten's a young person's guide to the orchestra. Was there a purposeful link there, or is that maybe it's just happy coincidence? No, there was. Uh, I, I've always kind of it, two things came together here: the, the the notion of how this hymn had been sort of kind of lost its dignity, and and also I thought it'd be fun to try and write a band piece along the lines of of Britain's. Young person's going to the orchestra. Now, listeners at home, uh, as usual, can download and follow through the school from the Salvation Army Music Index if they wish. And we're going to do that now. We're going to look at the score and uh, go through section by section. So you've already talked a little bit about this introduction here and the grandeur of that. How did you uh, achieve this real grandeur here, um, sort of musically and, and harmonically? That's a really good question. I've got to try and remember now how I approach this. A big block of sound from the, the, the whole band, apart from corners, to start, like a big organ chord, I suppose. So the, the first few bars, we've got the cornets versus the rest of the band and big, strong interjections from timps. Uh, yeah, it had to be grand. It had to be arresting. Uh, you know, if you arrive late, you've you've missed an important bit. You've got to get that first chord, tam tam plus band, and then the chord is coming in on the second beat. So that takes us on to section A, where we first hear the first iteration of that tune, uh, "Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven." Can you talk us through the way that you treat this here? Yeah, letter A. It, it reduces to about level 40 now um, from fortissimo so it's not not a big reduction um, the tune floats kind of serenely on the top here but um, some of the, the rhythm from the introduction on timps and percussion generally bop 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 that, that keeps interrupting if you like the serene top of the tune and the basses join in with some of the rhythmic stuff as well when we get to bar 12 and there's a great big fat chord again from the from the uh, the rest of the band there's a lot of uh, unashamed sonority about this piece you know i'm wallowing a bit yeah there's no question of it. i'm guilty i put my hand up um, so that's one of those moments, bar 12, where the, the band comes in with this big fat chord in, in a slightly different key and then it resolves. The style is epic. That's the word. Absolutely, and the music is epic too. <laughs> so that takes us into letter C, where we have our sort of first um, highlighted section, the cornet section. Can you talk us through um, some of the notable parts to look out for in this section? Yeah, there's some lively rhythmic work to do. I wanted to feature the cornets as a bright section and everybody has a go and then there's some nice uh, letter D we get some close close harmony work for lower cornets um, five or six note chords pam payam and a 40 piano but then we start getting a, a little figure from the melody so you'd have to be pretty dense not to pick that one up but letter D bar two so that starts working in against, you know, Praise My Soul, working against the little figures below. There's some uh, crisp rhythmic stuff follows that. And then we, we also get in bar four, 39, 40. That kind of thing from Praise. You're getting a wonderful example of my singing voice here as well, throwing in no extra charge.
feel that my music with my variations and I'm keen on variations <laughs> um, that they're not the kind that people think well what's that got to do with the tune you know I, I really hope that that they can hear it but if they can't hear it certainly if you get your hands on a score they can see where I've got my ideas from so that takes us through to section F where we have the saxhorn family of the band featured the horns and the baritones can you talk us through this next feature yeah I've tried to um, link those two together so that the, the big cornet chord just before F uh, the forte piano, the the the, the, the horns, baritones, the, the middle of the band, they come in at that point, and so and then when we come out of that chord, they're left on their own. So that's the signal that they're the next people to to receive attention, have their own variation, um, change of time into compound time, quite a quick six eight. Some bands take this too quickly, I think, and it's hard. I think it's hard to get the the neatness and precision. But um, the connection with the theme, I think, is pretty good, you know, they're pretty obvious. Baritones particularly don't get much limelight, really. Horns do, especially flugel. So I thought, yeah, they all need something to do. So every player has to cope with something. Most second home, second baritone players have thanked me for letter G when they get a little solo, <laughs> which they seldom do. <laughs> um, the trouble with writing uh, for the for the Salvation Army, as opposed to contest and bands, if you write for all the parts the way you'd like to, you'd want the interest to be equal between so-called secondary parts, uh, you know. But it, it, often in the army, we, we, you know, we struggle to, to fill those parts with good players. So you end up not giving them interesting things to do, which I hate, really. I, I much prefer everybody had something interesting to do. Um, so in a piece like this, you feel as if, yeah, you can justify... bars before I, the music um, again winds down. We're going into a, a, a different tempo at I, and um, I do a little chord, a chord overlapping um, bell effect. I don't know the word. Uh, anyway, there is a fancy word for it, but all the sounds all overlap and intermingle and everything. So you end up really with a big discord, but doesn't sound like a big discord because it's all quiet and melded together. And that really paints the scene and the, the, the mood for letter I, Adagio, where um, the noble trombone comes to the fore. that always astonishes me in this variation is the amount of space you know you've only got the, the three parts and additional band parts sort of accompanying when you're writing how do you incorporate space and not let the music feel too empty yeah I think that's a perception in the mind of the, the listener I think when you get that massive introduction with everybody playing I kind of think it helps the listener to concentrate because oh, there's only a few people playing here. It certainly helps the players concentrate, you know, thinly scored passages. And then the listener understands what's going on. Oh, he's featuring this lot and that lot and everybody's waiting for the next one. And I, and I think, yeah, it, it, it happens by itself, really. I don't think... I don't think they sound empty, those, those pages, but when you look at them, you know... Looks like a Wilfred Heat score because he only wrote the bars he felt like writing. He, most of it was white, white bars and Heaton scores. Um, yeah, I think the the listener 
takes over it. I think it's one of those pieces that people really do listen very carefully. So, after the trombones have uh, had their moment, they're put back in the cupboard for a while, and we move on to the uh, bass feature uh, around letter L. Can you talk us through uh, some of the considerations you made when writing this section? I have to say, if asked, this is my favourite end of the band, basses and euphoniums. Um, The warmth that you get from divided tubas and things, you know, or an extended tuba family with euphonium added in, uh, is uh, yeah, something special. I mean, it's um, I'm not sure there's quite a parallel in the orchestra. I mean, writing for orchestra, you've always feel you've got a lot more colours available, but you you know you've got cellos, I suppose, are, are similar to euphoniums in some regards, but. When you stretch out the tubas from bass, double B, up right through to to euphoniums, there's a a terrific um, possibility for really... You can't have the notes too close together because then they they obviously conflict unless you want a special dense effect for some of the dense listeners, you know. (laughs) (laughs) No, but you know, you might want a deliberately turgid mass, but... If you get the spacing right, and that this was all about the spacing, you know, it could sound muddy, and probably some of it does a little bit, because I do take a lot of liberties with it. But the first couple of bars is the middle, and I sort of ponder on, on that little again and do it again in a different key in a higher register. in tune in a high register it's a big ask and I ask them I mean, there's a very high rate especially for E flat tuba there you can see with those pauses um, and it's not easy not easy I realise that but most tuba players I know have been up for the challenge and in the contest pieces I've written I've usually written challenging tuba lines and um, you know they're usually up for it so I think probably they enjoy you might find differently. You might find that they hate this piece. and <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, I, yeah, I loved writing this, yeah. So that takes us to letter N, and we have our percussion yeah. variation. Certainly not, not something that you see in the brass band world that often, although maybe more increasingly so yeah. in the last 10 years or something. Uh, can you talk us through how did you get the excitement to rebuild in this section, you know, using twigs and uh, other bits of wood yeah I, I always feel a bit out of my depth with percussion especially anything to do with um, drum kit and stuff uh, and how to uh, how to notate it and it always troubles me but I think probably having written a few test pieces before this stage um, I felt a bit more liberated by that experience you know. get a, a chance to shine I mean percussion players are always shining aren't they you can't you can't have a mild mannered percussionist it just doesn't exist so from my observations here at the score when we get up to 144 crotchets per minute we have this carillon effect again coming from earlier that we saw in the yeah. cornets and um supported by all the forte pianos in the middle band. Can you talk us through this sort of transitional section through here all the way through to P? Yeah, very good question, really. Obviously, the carillon is is um, the last phrase of the tune. Praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him. Um, and I just thought that would be quite a good figure for cornets and trombones to do at, at the octave. And um, again, praise him, praise him, praise him. That's, that's the thematic link to all this this really every bar has that doesn't it from from 169 right through to the uh, the little 
Fugato section at letter P. And then the all-important bar of silence. Absolutely, absolutely. Music's all about sound and silence. And then again, people get nervous. What's going to happen here? Do you enjoy uh, making the performers and, and listeners nervous? Is that <laughs> well, I should do, because they make me nervous. So. <laughs> so, letter P, we have this little fugato theme. Is this derived at all from uh, Praise My Soul, or is this an original? No, no, oh, it? no it's derived. Yeah, letter P... Um, should be able to play this a little bit because it's just one line. Um. So, yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, lifted from the theme. Yeah, I didn't do anything in this piece. Sir John Goss, yeah, he's responsible for this piece. He's dead now, so he won't get any royalties, but you know, <laughs> he did most of it. No, I loved, I loved playing about with fugue and little fugal passages. Um, as, a, as a music student, you would know, Bach is a, is a part of everybody's diet and, and seeing how he creates his music, how he twists things around upside down and stretches them out and all that is, is fascinating. And seeing all the composers through different centuries taking those techniques. and uh, So yes, I'm fascinated by them all. Those are the kind of things I wouldn't have written had I not been to university, I suppose. I may not have got that you know insight in that I did the, when I studied as a, as a student. three sections, two bars before T, you've got the, the middle of the band come in syncopated and then the trombones and second pattern come in syncopated with their quavers and then the bam, the, the, on the beat, they're, they're all off the beat and then the tune therefore sounds much more prominent coming in on the beat at letter T and that's the theory anyway. to come or is this to associate with the words that you're associating for this verse? No, it's not word related, it's all about balance and um, if you're coming towards the end and you want a sense of finality uh, yeah, you can't sustain everything on boiling for too long so there's there's a slight step back let, at letter U yeah, there's plenty of movement uh, scalic passages all the way and if really good bands can play those with lots of push, pushing the semiquavers all the way through, you know, that, that, that can be very exciting. But it's not for long. We soon get back to Fortissimo again, halfway through, you know. <laughs> You, say, you think you're going to chord one. And then we go to chord four, which is in, in, enter the tubular bells at that moment. So everybody knows it's nearly time to get to the car park. <laughs> so the tubular bells are in and timps. Yeah. So that takes us through to our sort of final couple of sections. We end up at uh, W. Again, yeah. the music almost disappears to nothing, and yeah. then uh, within 
five or six bars is everything once again. Can you just talk us through these final couple of sections? Yeah, I think that the important thing, if W is going to be successful, then those six bars, six or seven bars before, have to be really, yeah, they have to be really good, don't they? They're quiet. And so, yeah, it's a springboard for the last few bars, the coda, when everything gets quick again, very quick, in fact, yeah, yeah, probably too quick. trombone, euphoniums <laughs> and uh, bass sections. Hammer blows. Yeah. And, uh, can you just talk us through harmonically? It's a really interesting last four bars of the piece. Can you just talk us through the, the chordal progression there for this grandiose end? Yeah, you ask some very difficult questions, don't you? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think um, the, the simplest way of looking at those, it, we're in... A, written G, concert F, but uh, starting from letter X, um, the tonic G written is is all, is all the way through there somewhere. Letter X, you've got the chord on the chorus and you've got this... Really, what holds it together? The soprano has got that and comes back there, so you end up, yeah, with a massive discord on the pause, but and it gets resolved on the last chord. I don't think people would find these chords offensive really because of the, the tonic. I don't know, do you? What do you think? Do you think it's <laughs> deeply offensive? <laughs> <laughs> I was considering walking out. <laughs> Sounds, sounds very wonderful. wise, very wise. <laughs> and then the ending with cornice and trombones and horns, they're just sliding up in first inversions to resolve on the last chord. time and your insight gotcha. into that I think uh, you know there are some pieces in the Salvation Army repertoire we're so blessed with so many but some mm. are real key works that will go down in history and I think that certainly is one so thank you for that insight player into it it's a pleasure thank you thank you Ken for that insight into your music absolutely fascinating thank you also to Ken and Patricia for hosting us that day the homemade cheese scones were amazing Maybe we should do a live cook-along as part of our next episode. Well, anyway, we may not be able to cook along at home right now, but it is your chance to play along at home with Band Mastermind at home. Before we do that, though, congratulations to our winner of last episode's Band Mastermind at home, Thomas Grimshaw, who correctly guessed a piece of music from the CD notes that were describing it. The piece was... All That I Am by William Himes. Unusually, nobody took home the extra bonus brownie points and uh, identified that the CD it was taken from was Corpus Christi. 
by Hendon Band. For today's Bandmastermind at home, I'm going to play a snippet of a piece of Salvation Army music. To win and get a mention in the next episode, all you need to do is correctly identify what the piece of music is and let us know the answer via the fully scored Facebook, Instagram or Twitter pages. Take your pick. For the bonus Bonanza Brownie points, you can even let us know which recording this is. Here is the episode. If you think you know, then let us know. It's now time to welcome back Beth Malavance to play Band Mastermind. Beth, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? Yes, I am so ready. Fantastic. And on a scale of one to Z, how nervous are you? Well, which one is the most nervous? Is that is that 10? Then yes. Trivia is yeah. not exactly my um, forte, so I will do my very best. Okie dokie. Well then, Beth Malavance, your time for Band Mastermind starts now. The death motif heard in Eric Ball's Exodus can be heard in which other of his works? I have no idea. Okay, uh, what was the general series originally called? Oh, I feel like I do know this one actually. Um, I don't know. Okay, uh, name the only staff band south of the equator to have taken part in the ISB 120 event. I'm going through all of them. Would it be the um, the um, Australian? Or, or no, 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 no. Sorry, hang on. I'm thinking, I don't know what's south of the equator. Is the Tokyo staff band south of the equator? <laughs> uh, you, you were very close. Let's move on to the next question. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, which of these two pieces was published first? In Quiet Pastures by Ray Stedman Allen or Emblem of the Army by Arthur Gulledge? In Quiet Pastures. Correct. Which staff bandmaster was interviewed in episode one of Fully Scored? Um, Phil Cobb? It was, uh, I was Sorry. You're absolutely correct there. Uh, what number in the festival series is George Marshall's March Army of the Brave? One. Uh, very close. Uh, we'll come back to the answers in a bit. Final questions. We're about to run out of time. Who is Principal Horn of the Household Troops Band? No clue. No worries. And that is our time up. So that gives you a grand total of two points which puts you in very good stead on our band mastermind leaderboard i'll just go through the answers of the questions you didn't quite get correct the death motif heard in eric ball's exodus can be heard also in resurgum oh, i should know that <laughs> it's all this pressure of band mastermind it makes you forget all sorts of things <laughs> um the general series was originally called the ordinary series and you may kick yourself for this one. The only staff band south of the equator to have taken part in the ISP 120 was a Melbourne staff band. Melbourne, I could not come up with that. That's why I was like, Australia? But I knew, yeah, obviously. All so right. I nearly gave it to you, but oh, it's <sighs> uh, you were correct with the two pieces, which was published first. And you got correct as well that Stephen Cobb was our first interviewee on the podcast the number in the festival series of george marshall's march army of the brave was number six and the principal horn of the household troops band is neil blessed well so i was shooting for one point so i'm pretty happy with my two yeah absolutely you smashed it doubled it <laughs> 
fantastic well thank you once again for giving up your time to chat to us it's been really great to have you on thank you so much hello sailors we've docked at our final destination please would you now all disembark we hope you've enjoyed setting sail to chicago and devon with us today if you have enjoyed your voyage then why not let us know on our social media outposts or leave us a review on itunes If you're listening to us on a train, bus, or even a ferry right now, tap the person beside you on the shoulder and tell them about us. Go on, you know you want to. Before we do go, there's always a few thanks to give. And today is no exception. So thank you very much to Beth and to Ken for giving up your time to speak with us and for doing so so willingly. Thank you also to our producer, Simon Gash, who's been busy in the engine room, stoking the furnace with lovely editing and organising of interviews. Thank you also to our mystical band nerds for scrubbing the deck for their excellent band nerdery and providing questions for band mastermind. And last, but by no means least, thank you to you, our listeners. I hope you're not feeling too seasick. Goodbye and God bless.